and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and today is the first day of the rest of the Biden presidency. The rescue plan is done. There are some things I hate about it, most obviously the choice to abandon an increase in the federal minimum wage, but all legislation is sausage making and there is no democracy without compromises as much as we hate the people we're compromising with, which is why we start again today. Now that this $1.9 trillion plan is done, let's take one moment to discuss what has gone right here. Like $1.9 trillion is a lot of money. And unlike the package that Donald Trump pushed through four years ago, which was roughly the same size, this goes much more to working people and far less to those who already have plenty just to bail out for them on the government's dime. You know, they never talk about waste when it comes to, into their pockets, but the Republicans attacked this recovery plan as being filled with things that aren't really like an economic stimulus. Well, there's a sad truth in that, of course, but you know, okay, we have to name it and celebrate it because right-wing Keynesian, which includes not only Reagan and Trump, but Clinton too, accepts that governments should prime the economic pump. But to that crowd, cutting taxes is just as good as building green energy plants. But progressives say it makes all the difference in the world how you spend the money, which is why the $1.9 trillion plan is worth talking about. It is the resurrection of an idea that government action, government spending can both prime the economy and make it fairer. This plan does more than any action by the federal government in generations to raise children out of poverty. This plan put cash in the pockets of working people, not enough, but at a moment of maximum economic uncertainty. This plan delays, although it doesn't res totally resolve, the looming financial crisis of local governments. A crisis that could lead to the layoff of thousands of teachers, firefighters, and frontline workers central to bringing the pandemic to an end. So as I said, a lot to be glad about. But now we need to look ahead at the substantial challenges this plan does not address. I find it useful in thinking about the future of the Biden presidency and what we want from the Biden presidency to look at where this, this country right now stands, actually stands right now. First, okay, the pandemic, it's not over and, and it won't be for some time. You find this jarring given all the happy vaccine news that dominates corporate media? Hmm. So let's be quick, clear, vaccinating everyone is great but it does not, it's not the end of the pandemic. It is the beginning of the end of the medical crisis. Once the medical crisis is behind us, the economic carnage will be clearer and right in front of Joe Biden's face. Do you think it's wrong of me to take satisfaction using the word carnage? I can't help it. I'm talking about real, profound human damage, not the made up American carnage of Donald Trump and his insurrectionists. If carnage helps to capture how this economic crisis runs, then I'm gonna use it. Think about this. In the two largest cities in America, New York and Los Angeles, you ready for this? One worker in five is either unemployed, working shortened hours, or is so discouraged or so overwhelmed by caring for children, parents, and spouses that she has given up looking for work. Do I need to repeat that? 20% of New Yorkers and Angelinos have had their economic well-being upended by this pandemic. These are the statistics on the scale of the Great Depression, and it's what we see now. And this won't magically get better in a day once everyone is vaccinated. Yet we aren't hearing much about this or hearing the stories of economic struggle that these statistics represent. 
The death toll has been staggering, painful and sobering, but it is only part of the story, which is why vaccinations are only the first step. President Biden, he plans to speak with this, uh, the nation on Thursday. I hope he doesn't use this address to you know, congratulate himself. In fact, I will pitch it right here to take some of the heat off of self-congratulating by saying, congratulations, Mr. President. Okay, cool. The rescue plan is a good beginning. Now what we need to hear from you is, where do we go from here? How are we going to create good jobs and good wages so people can get back to work and live a decent life? How are we going to address the rampant scourge of, 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 scourge of unemployment and underemployment and exploitative employment that has left so many on the ragged edge of ruin and wasted so much potential talent? How are we gonna get people out of debt? Personal debt, credit card debt, housing debt, student loan debt, medical debt. And Mr. President, how are we gonna help those Americans who have just given up looking for work outside their homes? Disproportionately women. Uh, we need to raise the minimum wage. We need an infrastructure bill and a green new deal that will create jobs building a green economy. We need you to say that on Thursday. You know, the things that you promised. And one more thing, we need you to say that you know that for millions of Americans, this crisis isn't even close to being over. And that building back better is not a tweet. It is a commitment from you to all of us. After all, you still have 53 days left in your first 100 days. So let's use them. We have a terrific show today. Jason Stanley is here to talk about fascism, how to, how to, how to name it, see it, call it out, how it comes. Uh, and then Keenan Korth joins us to discuss the Nevada Democratic Party. I don't know if you guys heard this story. This happened over the weekend. The Nevada Democratic Party was voted out and replaced by a bunch of progressives except the staff of the Nevada Democratic Party decided, oh, uh, we're quitting, and then we're gonna take all of our money from the Democratic Party with us so that the progressives now running the party don't have any money. Brilliant, just great. Like it's, it's, it's basically disaster capitalism for the Democratic Party, unreal. And later we have Akilah Lacey and Simon Rowe to talk about today's news. We will be right back after this break. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Jason Stanley is the author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. <laughs> what a time to be talking about this. <laughs> Jason, thanks for joining the show. Um, he's also a, uh, a, 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 a I'm going to say this wrong, Jaypid Urowski, professor of philosophy at Yale University. Uh, so if you're a student at Yale, go check out his class. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So How Fascism Works, um, could you have written this book like maybe six years ago? <laughs> so <we could> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I had been writing about this topic for about a decade in, uh, in, in the press. Uh, my first piece in the press ever was on, uh, was on uh, birtherism uh, mm. in 2011. So uh, that, <laughs> yeah. So and then, and then my second piece was called Media and Mistrust, and it was about Fox News. I remember that. <laughs> All right. So, um, I mean, it's in retrospect, it's always easy to say, oh, that's how we got there. But what were the things that we missed along the way uh, that we should have known based on what you've examined through history? Uh, you know, whether it was the rise to World War, uh, World War II and, and Nazism and fascism in Italy, et cetera. Um, what, what, what was like right there in front of our faces that we didn't stop? Well, a lot. I mean, I think a, a lot of our... Uh, a lot, a lot of my work is based in the black radical tradition in the United States, which has looked at uh, the 
ordinary institutions of the United States and seen strongly fascist tendencies within them. I mean, we live in a country with the world's highest incarceration rate and for uh, and black Americans uh, are a minority population that has been targeted for enslavement and other horrors, uh, you know, ha has one of the highest incarcerated, maybe the highest highest incarceration rate of the world of, of any ethnic group outside Ugar Muslims. Right. So, uh, so there are various features of our society that, uh, that are sort of ready for this. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison in 1995 gave a Howard address called Racism and Fascism, mm. uh, talking, about, uh, talking about this. We've kept fascism located on our, uh, uh, sort of directed in our police force, which Black Lives Matter has drawn our attention to, uh, but it sort of hasn't, uh, hasn't sort of like expanded outside of, uh, of, of, aimed at a minority, it's mainly been aimed at, uh, at minority and poor populations. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had that in place. And then what, we, we, what we've seen over the past two decades is we've seen elite failure. Uh, so we've seen that paves the road for a positive social change as well as negative social change. Uh, it paves the road for people to come and say the elites have failed you mm -hmm. and be right. Right. Um, and so, uh, so, and when we fail to have accountability for elite failure, uh, you you can it sets the it sets the agenda for a demagogue to come uh, and say, uh, look, you need a strong hand uh, who's going to punish the elites, uh, who's going to make sure, who's going to roll back, uh, roll things back, uh, because uh, to make sure that you don't lose your country uh, to them, uh, meaning the minorities, the leftists. Mm -hmm. So all of that is set up. Um, if you create a recipe for fascism, what would the ingredients be? The ingredients would be uh, a, 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 minor, a, immigra, a minority populations that you could blame thing that you could blame the troubles of the country on, uh, uh, elites that have failed you that have clearly and manifestly been self dealing. Uh, uh, you'd have. Uh, uh, most f fascist, there are fascist movements all across the world uh, right now, and there have been for quite some time, and they're linked, these ethno-nationalist movements in India, say, right. Brazil, uh, we, have, we have a fascist movement, they're, they're sort of linked. So you look for those uh, links to international fascist movements, and you look for massive inequality, because mm -hmm. when you have massive inequality, first you have the kind, what I would think, what I would call, you know, well, Toni Morrison called it fascist solutions to national problems. She said the United Ooh. States is an addiction to fascist solutions to national problems. What a line. What a line. So, yeah, don't, uh, and uh, and so, uh, so when you have massive inequality, then you need a militarized police force that holds, that, that has a police response to massive inequality. Um, you have, uh, you, you have, uh, and then, and then you have, and you can have, uh, it's best to have a past where the white, where, where the dot, where you had a dominant majority that controlled the cultural institutions that controlled everything. And so you can say, you can blame the problems of the present on the loss of that past. Hmm. So, okay, let me, I'm just thinking about fascist movements throughout history and, and, you know, the obvious one, Mussolini. Who are the minorities under Mussolini? Right. So Mussolini, uh, Mussolini uh, didn't uh, fascism in Italy uh, did, doesn't start out 
Uh, well, I mean, it starts out colonialists. The minorities right. are the Ethiopians. And right. it was Black Americans who called attention to this fact. Right. It was Black Americans who, who, who linked what was happening in Ethiopia to uh, the racial struggle in the United States. So it was colonialism. And, uh, and in, in the case of Mussolini, it was the colonial war in Africa. It was also colonialism in the case of Hitler. Uh, it was the desire, as Du Bois, as Black, as black writers such as Césaire and Du Bois, clearly saw. Hitler bemoaned the loss of the African colonies uh, in World War One. So it was uh, it was it was the it was the loss of uh, the loss of colonies, uh, the racial racial domination. Uh, now, what you have in the United States is internal domination. Mm -hmm. uh, you have internal colonialism. You have internal colonies. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to to regard what's happening uh, in a lot of in the kinds of cities that Trump wants to see uh, uh, have the vote removed from disenfranchised. Uh, I, I think it's fair or just or if you look at what happened with Michigan with Flint, Michigan, right. and in general with the Emergency Manager Act, the kind of seizing control of black majority cities. I think we can clearly talk of internal colonization in the United States. So we can see the same dialectic with European fascism. It was external colonization. Mm. It was the desire to dominate Africa. Here, um, it's the desire to dominate our internal populations. Is that sort of the future of fascism? Is is uh, I guess the question is, what is the future of fascism? Um, how is it evolving? I mean, obviously, the media today is is very different than the radio waves, but um, but it but seems media to... is deeply involved. Exactly. Uh, so in that's... Case, uh, you know, the, the I live on YouTube. I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So these these media, you know, when you look at the the Nazi use of radio, you see that uh, you know the the propaganda, which is right. central to any kind of fascist movement, uh, mass spreading of conspiracy theories, mass spreading of of just destruction of truth. They're going to use whatever media sort resources they have, and uh, now is no different. It's just that we have different media. So is it, so what does the future fascism look like, uh, you know, including this this new way of spreading propaganda with tech companies just like looking the other way and not even caring <laughs> or right. facilitating it? Exactly. So we, we've got we've got sort of a much more uh, just as radio facilitated uh, Hitler's speeches and mass mm -hmm. propaganda in ways that was uh, was a radio and film. Now we have. Uh, new media that spreads conspiracy theories incredibly quickly. And whenever you look at a genocide right now, uh, I mean, not whenever, I'm sure that actually what's happening in China uh, is not based on this. But if you look at Myanmar, if you look at a number of, of the situations we faced, WhatsApp, a lot of the media, media is involved in spreading conspiracy theories. So we have that. We have, I think, an inter, interlinked ethno-nationalist movements. Fascism looks different in every country. It's not the same story in every country. American fascism will look very different than Italian fascism or German fascism. But we have these links. Right now, I think if you look at the disenfranchisement that's happening in Georgia, that's happening in a number of states across the, across the country in reaction to the 2020 elections and democratic successes, uh, I think you're, you're seeing they're drawing both on the US past, but mm -hmm. all also Hungary and Poland. Interesting. How so? Because in those countries, they've mastered the elections. They've gerrymandered. They've dominated the ju judiciary. You could see with Donald Trump's response uh, to the judiciary sort of remaining fairly firm uh, in response to the uh, attempted coup, uh, he was sort of shocked 
because uh, that wasn't that didn't happen in Hungary. That didn't happen in Poland. The judges sort of have, they they replaced the judiciary quickly, uh, and it quickly became a loyalist judiciary. Uh, I think I think we what we've seen here is it's going to be not that hard to dismantle. It's going to be harder than in Poland, than in Hungary and Poland, and harder than in Brazil. Uh, but it's not by any means impossible. Uh, to dismantle the press, the media, the, the press, yeah. the judiciary, the voting system. Uh, and so we've got these uh, we've got these international techniques. Poland borrowed from Hungary. I mean, Viktor Orban now has total power in Hungary. And also you see a kind of fascism without the violence right now. You see a fascism without like Hungary. I mean, Viktor Orban has complete, total one person control of the country. Uh, and he's done that using the civil courts, uh, using enormous uh, fines and fees. So uh, so I think with with a huge militarized police force used to dealing with our problems with inequality, with one of the two major parties uh, ready to become a cult of the leader, just looking for the next one mm -hmm. uh, and already signaling uh, everything that needs to be signaled uh, about its authoritarian tendencies uh, and with the massive wealth inequality and corruption. I mean, in past fascist, uh, when when fascism rose, you know, across Europe, right? There was always this like facilitation by the the center left, right? So, I mean, in particular, Hitler, right? So, 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 I look at the situation. I think, well, why aren't the tech companies cracking down? I mean, I'm I'm thinking fifty years from now, you know, hopefully this is the end um, of the Trump era, but I'm, I'm guessing it's not given, you know, who's got the most popular shows on, on TV, Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro online. And, and, you know, these, these like ex extremists that are absolutely being boosted by tech companies and 50 years from now, are we going to look back and say, okay, why didn't the Democrats do something about this? Because oh, they were taking like a lot of their money or why didn't, I mean, there's always that like facilitation, right? Well, you know, there's different, uh, you know, Germany is one very particular thing. Uh, Italy is one particular thing. If, it, if uh, we're seeing authoritarian creep here and uh, we're seeing facilitation happen in a number of different ways. I mean, you can look back at the way the, uh, the Democrats in the 90s leaned into the Republican Southern strategy, oh, yeah. thereby keeping white nationalism uh, uh, very much alive in both parties. Uh, failing to deal with the uh, torture regime after the Iraq war, or the right. consequences of the financial crisis, all of that will be looked at as facilitation, as- uh, That's as, neoliberalism though. But uh, like, but in, in, I mean, Rosa Luxemburg famously warned, uh, you know, how, how the, the center left was not, was, was, was partnering with the wrong guys um, or not standing up to the, to the, to the rise yeah. of Nazi Hitler. Yeah. So like, is this our moment? Are we sitting here when Joe Biden says, you know, Joe, are we going to look back and look at Joe Manchin and say, thanks, Joe Manchin? Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I tweeted that the minute he started uh, mumbling about compromising with Republicans. I mean, we absolutely need something like like a massive New Deal, a Green New Deal, uh, you know, something that that makes every American think that government is working for them. 
that uh, be, and, and rolls back this, this thought that government is this invisible thing that is really working for, for uh, you know, is, is just corrupt and, and, and helping minorities. And then we've got to deal with, uh, with racial injustice so we don't have these constant, uh, the, the constant uprisings against massive police violence and, uh, and the carceral state that then a demagogue can use in their demagogic law and order campaign and say, I'm going to bring you law and order, as Nixon did, uh, and as we saw Trump try to do twice, Trump did twice. Um, so we need to deal with all of those problems, uh, and that will require a kind of massive rethinking um, and not no more self-dealing with uh, with. Uh, no more self-dealing with the oligarchs. And the oligarchs at some point are going to say democracy harms us. I mean, many of them already have. Uh, many of them about, who are funding Trump and Trumpism uh, and, and, you know, and aspects of the Democratic Party, in case that doesn't work, uh, they have no allegiance to democracy. Uh, they're going to, uh, you know, and, and w when you have massive inequality, you're going to need ever, uh, you're going to need ever more beefed up security uh, sources, ever more surveillance uh, to prevent any kind of rebellion. And all of that leans into a fascist future. I've learned about that from the Harry and uh, Meghan interview. <laughs> 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 Massive surveillance. <laughs> Security is needed. <laughs> like, wow, inside the mind of like basically a kingdom. I mean, it's, it's, it's I joke about it, but it's, it's true. I mean, it is it's a colonial state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we ha we that's the other thing. This idea that somehow you can get beyond uh, that, you can get to the point where everyone is is democratic. Uh, democracy is a, is, is a fantasy. Democracy is an ideal. Very few people have lived under democracy. No one probably has lived under an actual democracy. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so democracy is an ideal. Uh, you see it all around you. you. We saw it all around us during the Trump era. Many people want a dictator. Yeah. Um, many people want, you know, Plato in the Republic. Uh, in his criticism of democracy, is that most people don't want freedom. They want a strong leader to worship. They want to chant, I love you. Uh, and so that will always be a portion of society. Um, right. and, and they will always want something like a monarch. Um, it's so funny because I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when I'm from New York and very familiar with Andrew Cuomo. And um, I remember the beginning of the pandemic, people before he, it was like, as it moved into the Cuomo sexual thing, people were just like worshiping him. And what I said, you know, being very familiar with Andrew Cuomo, it was like, I think it's because people want to feel in control and he's channeling that control. And now, you know, now we've got Biden. So, you yeah. know, suddenly the, 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 the things are sticking. The, the stories that have always been there, you know, are sticking. Cuomo always had this kind of authoritarian uh, uh, strongman kind of character to him. It's uh, that aspect of things is neither left nor right. And Cuomo had that. Cuomo had a kind of, um, you know, is that I'll take care of you, lady. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's a successful political and way. Kill your to grandparents too, um, <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Um, so, so that's people are attracted to that as a form of rule. I think it's a dangerous form of rule. Um, I think you know maybe you could have a really good. Uh, leader who mm -hmm. employs that for propaganda purposes. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you want, you know, you don't want to, uh, to in a democracy to have, you know, a person who is your charismatic leader. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, AOC is a charismatic leader uh, and, and she might be able to harness 
uh, frankly, some anti-democratic charismatic leadership into, po into power that she would then use, I think, for the, for the people. Uh, but ultimately, you know, uh, that's that's what uh, I mean. She has she's she's not obviously. I think it's very difficult in this kind of fascist machismo to to do that with a woman, and you wouldn't see you don't see AOC's leadership in any sense like that. Um, but people people want someone to worship, admire, and follow. That's what you saw with Andrew Andrew Cuomo this summer, when without any good reason, people just. Uh, <laughs> as you said, it was like their therapy. <laughs> yeah. Therapy, it was therapy, it was. leadership, because freedom, because in time, when you become fearful, what, what, uh, what, what an authoritarian leader wants you to do is become fearful. And right. when you become fearful, you feel like you need a strong leader. Right. And that's dangerous for democracy. There was a leadership vacuum too. Um, you do a lot of work around propaganda as well. And I I'm curious if, are there like, I mean, I know this sounds, uh, especially for our audience, we could probably identify right-wing propaganda and, and corporate propaganda as, as well as anybody, but, you know, there it's it's gotten much more sophisticated. Can you kind of describe like what the evolution of propaganda looks like now? Well, I think to some extent it hasn't gotten more sophisticated in that, you know, so in, in, in uh, if you look at, uh, if you, if you look at, uh, my book, my last book, my, my second to last book was called How Propaganda Works. My last book was called How Fascism Works. And How Fascism Works, I talk about uh, how uh, Hitler uh, had this, um, there was a propaganda campaign about uh, black Senegalese soldiers occupying the Rhineland, uh, the black horror on the Rhine. And it spread worldwide, you know, let's save the poor German women from the occupying French army. And, uh, you know, 17,000 people gathered in Madison Square Garden uh, in New York City to protest, you know, the black horror on the Rhine. I so know. in a sense, you know, this kind, the kind of fear mongering propaganda uh, the the structure of uh, of uh, fascist propaganda, which is what I'm looking at in that last book, the structure of fascist propaganda, like they're here, they're going to destroy your family, uh, they're going to take your women. Uh, you need a strong leader to protect your women, uh, your women. Uh, you know, uh, you, the the real authentic people live in the countryside. The cities are diseased. I mean, it's remarkable the degree to which we are seeing the same tropes over and over and over again, uh, sent to our iPhones more rapidly. Uh, but uh, my job in the propaganda conferences I go to is to remind people that the structures we're seeing are familiar, just repackaged and sent more quickly. There are propaganda conferences? There are many propaganda conferences. <laughs> I love this. I want to go to, oh my gosh, Dorsey, our producer. We got to go to the next propaganda conference when they have one in real life. We've got to cover this. This is amazing. Sam Cedar covers like torts. We we cover <laughs> propaganda. Um, he says yes. <laughs> so you got to let us know. Keep us keep us in the loop. What's the best propaganda conference? And we are on it. Uh, Jason Stanley, super interesting. Go check out his book. Uh, this is um, who, who publishes your book? Hang on a second. Is it Verso? Penguin Rogers. There we go. Uh, it's How Fascism Works, uh, The Politics of Us and Them. You can go check it out at any, at IndieBound.org. We got that one up there right now. Go to a local place, get rid of that Amazon addiction because they're facilitating this. Their facilitator is the fascist state. It would be, it's so ironic that you can buy this stuff on Amazon anyways. Um, they'll take it, I guess. Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> All right, we will be back in just a couple of seconds with Keenan Korth to talk about the Nevada Democratic Party. This is an insane story. I, I like, 
I can't wait to talk about this. This is this is like candy for me. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Keenan, look at you, looking sharp. Keenan Korth Hi. is a friend. I should start with that. Full disclosure, he's my friend. He's a consultant with Progressive Cons- Consulting. Uh, he was, he's a communications specialist. He ran uh, Amy Valella. He managed Amy Valella's huge campaign, primary campaign for Congress in Nevada a couple of years ago. You may have seen him in Knocked Down the House. I watched it again recently. and I was like, oh, there's Keenan. I, I don't think I paid that much attention last time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, this story is bonkers. I am so excited people are now talking about, I mean, it's only been a couple days, but that it's getting the attention that it deserves. All right, let's, let's, like, let's like start from the beginning. You're, you're a member of DSA. You're a progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been a big part of this like take over the Democratic Party effort. And let's just remind folks what happened in 2016 in Nevada with the Democratic Party. Yeah, so um, a lot of what we've accomplished this this past cycle, this past year, this past weekend is definitely a result of lessons learned and the experiences uh, that folks on the left here in, in uh, Nevada had uh, from 2016. Um, we had a very close caucus here uh, in 2016 between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Uh, folks got very mobilized uh, in that caucus to convention process. Uh, after the precinct level, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure folks are familiar with the county level caucus, where where Bernie delegates, alternate delegates, uh, oh, briefly overturned the results. Uh, that was uh, that effort did not succeed through the state level, uh, but it was definitely an informative part of our strategy here in in 2020 and 2021. Now, about the opportunity there is uh, coming out of the caucus based on how our state party is structured. And just for folks who like, just to jog their memories, this was the chair throwing thing. What happened with the chair throwing thing? So the chair throwing was at the state level convention um, okay. where, so this right. was in the aftermath of folks um, at, the, at the county level having, you know, briefly overturned those results by, you know, capitalizing on the alternate delegate uh, process. So. Um, again, it didn't, and what had happened? Like, what did they say? Uh, so there were allegations that, uh, Bernie supporters were, um, on the verge of rioting <laughs> that, uh, someone had thrown a chair. Um, that is still a hotly contested, uh, you know, issue here in, in Nevada. I know there's plenty online about it on Snopes. Uh, in particular, kind of debunking that claim, but um, we are we are well versed in chair throwing jokes on both sides of the aisle here. <laughs> the the Democratic aisle. Okay, um, yeah. so so you guys have been working your your butts off to reform this party, the Nevada Democratic Party. Let's remind folks this is also Harry Reid. Like Harry Reid is still a very present force in in Nevada, right? Oh, absolutely, and you know Harry Reid has helped. Um, build one of the strongest democratic parties in the nation uh, alongside of uh, organizers at the culinary union, uh, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada uh, are as a union state, it's a union town. It's a 
it's a modern 21st century union town where uh, our workforces are in the entertainment and service industry, um, majority women workforces, majority people of color, majority immigrant workforces that have a lot of you know, political power through their, their unions and their labor organizing. Um, and that's part of why I think Nevada is such uh, fertile ground for progressive organizing because of those, some of those dynamics. Um, and the Reed Machine has been extraordinarily successful. They've won uh, four of the last four presidential races here. We have two uh, Democratic senators. Without them, we would not have uh, the slim majority we have in the Senate right now. Uh, we elected our first Democratic governor in 20 years. Wow. Um, so the dynamic here is not quite so black and white as I think a lot in the media want to make it. But what we see here is um, a successful party uh, who has made a lot of gains. But if you look deeper than that, the trend is alarming for what we might be facing in 2022 with the midterms underneath a Democratic administration and, and Senate majority and House majority. And there are folks here that um, are not happy with what has happened in this past week in the Democratic Party, so thinking like, that let, if let's it get ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? Right. Okay. But, so, so, so what happened? Because we're kind of like leading up to this big yeah. moment. <laughs> so, so this past weekend, we had our uh, Nevada Democratic Party statewide officer elections. So that's chair of the party, first vice chair, second vice chair, secretary and treasurer. Um, those five officers sit on the state party executive board, uh, which is composed of uh, 14 additional at-large members allocated between Clark County, Washoe and the rurals, uh, as well as our, our DNC committee man and committee woman. Uh, and then uh, the chairs of our four statewide caucuses, the Rural Caucus, the Young Dems, uh, the Native American Caucus, and uh, the newly ratified statewide uh, Nevada Black Caucus. So there's 25 members. Um, the five elections we had this weekend were limited to just those officer positions. So those, those elections kind of, um, uh, for those different executive board seats happen at various times throughout the cycle. Um, those at-large members, uh, those 14 at-large members were up for election over the summer at the state convention through that county, through that caucus to convention process from that precinct to county to state level, ultimately to the DNC. And that's when we really started seeing the power of our organizing when we contested, I believe, 12 out of those 14 at-large seats and won 11 of them. Uh, and then later in the summer, there was a, a special election for our second vice chair officer position where we elected uh, Dr. Zafar Iqbal, who was a 2020 Nevada Bernie State co-chair, uh, as well as the founder of both the uh, Nevada Muslims for Bernie organization, uh, and since then has uh, founded a chartered uh, Muslim Democratic Club here in Clark County, uh, one of our most engaged uh, and progressive clubs. So. Uh, so he won in a landslide then, and that's when we knew if we stay organized, keep our, our, our foot on the gas, we can win these officer elections. So you ended up winning. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then, uh, and then, you know, everyone was excited. Uh, and then what happened? 
so you took over all the seats by the way right all the yeah yeah so we won outright four of the five seats live in that meeting um dr iqbal who was the only candidate running for re-election the other four officers Mm -hmm. were all stepping down um two of them who had been in those roles for decades so it's definitely a, a, a no matter what happened it was going to be a big leadership change um we won again four of those seats outright in that meeting the treasurer's race initially um it was it was the closest of the five races wow. uh there was a two point margin coming out of that meeting uh with the other candidate ahead but uh immediately following the adjournment of that meeting our tellers committee met to canvas the results and certify them, um, you know, and this is, this is messy stuff. Uh, we're operating, um, you know, remotely via zoom. Our tellers committee had a very short window as people signed on to vet them to see if they were members or guests, guests are permitted to attend. So what happened was, um, in that rush, there were a few folks that were both erroneously marked as guests who were members, unfortunately, Um, were kind of disenfranchised from a couple of these votes. In certain cases, it was corrected in time for later votes. Uh, But there were also a handful of folks who were guests who were erroneously marked as members and able to vote. And so when those votes were scrutinized and those um, ineligible votes were eliminated, the result of the treasurer race, uh, all of the results shifted a little bit, you know, a few, few less votes in each case. But in the treasurer's race, we went from um, preliminary results of 233 to 230, uh, down to 220, uh, 233 to 231, down to 227 to 230. So we went from down two votes to up three votes. And the next day when the results were certified, uh, all five of our candidates did indeed win and were uh, assuming office. Okay, so then it gets really dramatic, but what I wanna do, are you around to stick, we have a Kayla Lacey here today who wrote a story on this. Would you be cool yeah. with jumping on the panel in a couple of, like a couple uh, of seconds? Sure. And just, and discussing sure. the drama part with, is that, are you cool with that? Sure. Like 10 more minutes, don't worry. <laughs> I know I'm just throwing that in your lap, but you know, it's a tight show and I, yeah. I'm like, there's so much to the story that I definitely wanna unpack, okay. Uh, stick around. We're just going to come back after like a brief little break uh, with our panel and we'll talk about what they did to punish you. All right. Welcome back. The- surprise, surprise, Akela. <laughs> Akela Lacey is a politics reporter at The Intercept and she actually just published a piece on this Nevada story. Uh, Keenan, Akela, I'm sure you guys know each other. So <laughs> we just met yesterday over the phone. <laughs> How perfect is this? So this piece came out with Ryan Grimm and Akela. Um, super interesting story. So we just kind of discussed the lead up to what happened. Like the vote happened, uh, the progressives won. And I I, I, I want to ask Keenan how the Democratic Party responded. Um, and this is Simon Road, who's part of our team. Sorry, we're joining the panel. We're, we're, we're looping back real quick. Um, Simon Road was part of Bernie 2016 or 2020, excuse me. Um, okay, so Keenan, what happened with the Democratic Party? What did they do? What did what did the staff do? <laughs> so before the meeting on Saturday had even formally concluded, um, some folks were already speaking to the press here, uh, leaking some information about um, 
imminent resignations of staff at the state party, um, information about money being transferred. Uh, I believe it was $450,000 from the state party bank account uh, to the DSCC. Um, we have a, a reporter here, John Ralston. I'm sure you're all familiar. Uh, we were talking about throwing chairs just a few minutes ago, um, <laughs> who was, you know, putting this information out on, on Twitter, um, fanning the flames between this intra-party um, divide that we have uh, between the progressive wing and, and those who have been in power for a long time. Uh, which is nothing new to us here in Nevada. He's been doing that for a long time. Um, but it, you know, was certainly disappointing to see some of the immediate reactions from the party. Um, but we were always operating under the premise that we should hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. I think ultimately we landed somewhere in the middle Really? Um, there was something worse than, than purging the party of its staff and, and all of its resources? Uh, you know, we <laughs> knew like that our executive, we, we knew that our executive director was leaving Alana Mounts. Uh, she's helped lead the party these past couple cycles. Uh, she had publicly announced that she would be stepping down as our executive director and, and, uh, uh moving into a role with the DNC. Um, so we knew that there were going to be some staffing changes. Uh, there was never any intent to, fire folks across the board, although there are rumors that folks said that it, it's not true. Um, so it's unfortunate that folks don't feel like they can work with us, but that's nothing new to us on the left. We've always known that uh, we have to show people that we are professionals, that we know how to organize, that we're serious about winning. And uh, the left is gaining experience and power and building infrastructure every day, cycle after cycle, there's more there. And we feel like we're really well poised uh, to take the reins of the state party and um, raise the money we need to raise to win in 2022. You know, Judith Whitmer, our, our new chair, said uh, repeatedly on the campaign trail, she's not willing to concede a single seat. Uh, and we, you know, we intend to make good on that. We know that for a lot of people, uh, they're going to need to see us succeed before they'll believe we're able to do it. And that's exactly what we intend to do. Akela, what did you discover when you were covering the story in terms of like um, the, 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 the relationship between DSA, for instance, and the part, I mean, this is just such an amazing dynamic to see how DSA uh, got like as involved as, and I know Keenan was involved in that, but what did you discover, Akela? So, I mean, it's obviously like this is a this is a tension that has been brewing for, you know, well back before like 2016. I mean, as Keenan has has alluded to and a lot of the kind of critics of uh, of the new party chair, Judith Whitmer, um, and some of the other candidates on the slate, you know, when we were talking to them, we're sort of saying, you know, taking the line that these people had been sort you know, kind of upstarts in this sphere for a long time, weren't making things easy for anyone in the Democratic Party, um, hadn't been, you know, we're, I'm, I'm paraphrasing kind of what people said to us, hadn't been working to build relationships with other people, sort of all of these things about reasons that they didn't want to work with this new party um, or this new this new slate of candidates, um, which, 
is ironic. And I mean, we get at this in the story. Like, I think this anecdote sort of encapsulates the situation pretty well that the DSA slate ran as the progressive slate and the, uh, the establishment slate ran as the progressive unity slate, um, sort of pushing this angle that like, oh no, they're the, they're the people who are, are making problems. Like these are, they're the people that are causing issues. Like we're the ones who actually want to keep the party together when in reality they were trying to consolidate their power to keep people out of, of this system. So, um, I mean, I think that is really key. The other thing that I think is even more interesting, you know, like we talk about, you know, covering politics in DC and covering this, like, it's not that abnormal per se to expect staffers to clear out or to have some turnover with a new, uh, a new executive director of the party. But the fact that they took severance and that they emptied the party's bank accounts um, and funneled them to out-of-state consultants and also to the DSCC. I mean, you can't write, you can't write a better story than that. Like, it's just, it's very, very clear what their intention was, which was to sort of decimate the infrastructure and leave, leave people with, with, you know, kind of no resources in their toolbox to move on. And um, so, I mean, that, that's really what came through when we were talking about this and just very clear that, you know, there was a lot of animosity um, here and people, I mean, the, the, the other interesting aspect that I want to bring out and that we, I think we, um, we included in the piece is that Senator Cortez Masto asked Judith to drop out of the race and approached her opponent about running. Um, and this is like a little bit of a wrinkle because I think, you know, it's not a super clear line in, in this, this piece of the story, as far as like, Oh, like they don't want Bernie people because Tick Sagerblom was, was Bernie's chair um, in Nevada in 2016 and 2020. But, the, but the establishment thought that he would be a person who would, let them have a little bit more control and and ha- let them have a little bit more of a say than um than than the new executive chair in this case so um it, yeah just very sort of quintessential um establishment versus versus insurgent dynamic but there's a lot of interesting wrinkles and i mean keenan can speak to a little bit more of that but i it, it's it's a pretty fascinating story um and i just want to give a props to the las vegas journal review that reported this first at the local level and and got a lot of these details out and, and laid the groundwork for us to sort of um continue reporting it out um which i'm just, just- being who I am, uh, I'm curious. Which were the consultants that do? Do you guys know who they gave the money to, and um, and what are their uh, Twitter <laughs> handles? Um, John Ralston. I think there's a screenshot of it somewhere floating around that I can try and dig up while we're on here. But I don't. I don't have the names off the top of my head. Maybe someone else might. <laughs> my my understanding is uh, mostly money was transferred to the DSCC. How is that um, even obvious? that's not legal guys <laughs> you have to like sorry just it, that's like goes against dnc rules you can't just do that <laughs> okay sorry i'm <laughs> well i mean a lot of mounts is also you know is is now going to be working for the dnc um which is interesting i mean i i don't i'm not suggesting that there's any sort of coordination there but like i'm sure there's some sort of like <laughs> You know, I'm sure they thought about that. I, I don't know, but I agree with you. It doesn't seem, uh, it does not seem above board. I mean, it's, it's not like, I'm, I'm going to guess that usually the state party has to meet and you have to discuss what you do with those funds and you're supposed to have a budget committee, which of course, nothing, nowhere in the DNC ecosystem actually exists. Like they'll show you a pie chart and they'll be like, oh, we spent a quarter of our money on 
GOTV, a quarter of it on media, a quarter of it on uh, expenditures. And they're like, and then the rest was uh, is in our fund. And they're like, there's your budget after we spent it. Well, it's that, unreal. you know, that's at, at the lo at the state and local level, that is something our slate ran on is um, in particular, our treasurer, Howard Beckerman, is simply um, increased transparency, more details on those right. kinds of reports. Um, you know, obviously these resignations and these these contract cancellations came um, presumably after uh, the election, aside from Alana, who already we knew was outgoing. Um, but the money transferred what did happen before, uh, I will note, before the election. So it was, um, you know, I guess they were also hoping for the best, planning for the worst um, from their perspective. Uh, you know, I will say, I think there's this assumption that we don't know what we're doing and that if they uh, starve us of resources, we won't have to be able or we won't be able to succeed. Uh, but one thing I can attest to um, on the left is that we are indeed very resourceful. Um, we uh, have built, you know, I spoke to it earlier, building new infrastructure every cycle. Uh, there are incredible uh, folks on the left who do small dollar fundraising, high dollar fundraising from individuals who do incredible outreach, um, you know, digital outreach. Uh, it should be on, the burden should be on you. I mean, like this is the this is the crazy thing to me is like the DNC. Remember the fifty state strategy? Like, remember mm -hmm. how like the DNC is supposed to support state parties? Remember all this stuff? And it's like. Yeah. I mean, with all due respect that you guys are resourceful and you're smart, but it shouldn't be on you. I mean, that's well, how you lose like a thousand seats. <laughs> like you, you start well, it, is, it is on us now because we well, control I mean, the party and, and, and they can, you know, they can, they can take a half million dollars away. But you the bottom demand line from Jamie is, Harrison. Say, Jamie, <laughs> well, well, you know, you, the, you bottom, left us out to dry. the bottom line is that we have to raise 20 times that, if not more. Uh, you know, over this next two year cycle to be competitive and win. And we knew that going into this, we fully intend to. And for what it's worth, uh, the, the media around this, I, d I don't think John Ralston um, was anticipating uh, that this would actually work in our favor the way he reported it. I think he's one of these people who assumes that we are absolutely hapless, but um, the response, you know, from Akila's article, other reporting on this, you know, nationwide has been incredible. I think there's an incredible amount of excitement out there. Um, and whether we're starting a half million dollars in the hole or whether that money comes back when they realize that we are serious and, and uh, capable of winning, um, it's a huge motivating factor. And folks are already from all across the country uh, reaching out to us and, and the new officers wondering how they can donate. So if I could make a plug So how here, could you, how can um, people donate if you've got some uh, money very, to help them survive? It's very simple. Just visit uh, nvdems.com slash 2022. Uh, that will take you to Act Blue. You can make a contribution there. We've um, uh, been raising thousands and thousands of dollars already from small dollar donors um, in the short time uh, that we have been in control and you know, I think there is um, always going to be bad feelings coming out of elections, whether they're, you know, for public office or intra-party and, you know, folks that lose are not going to be happy about that. And there was not, um, you know, 
immediate olive branches coming out. Um, you know, some of the details were, were disappointing to see. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think folks have kind of sobered up a little bit and they realize like we do what's at stake in 2022. And so um, we have seen a great deal of cooperation from Alana and the outgoing offices. And that's what's been able to help us um, you know, move swiftly and efficiently in this transit in this transition um, to get all this up and running, so that we can fundraise and that we can specifically, I think, capitalize on an extraordinary amount of excitement nationally from the progressive base, from you know the socialist left, um, who who I think uh, folks are excited across the board. I think a lot of folks are um, floored, quite frankly, that. Um, you know, we've we've at least for us here in Nevada answered this question that's been plaguing the left when we engage in electoral work as to whether or not the Democratic Party uh, can or cannot be taken over. I think we've we've answered that it can be. Uh, I think the second part of that is is it worth it? Um, and we uh, absolutely intend to show that it is. So. Keenan, awesome. Awesome work. Uh, go check it out. We got the website there. We'll put it in the info section. Thanks for joining us today, Keenan. Uh, we're going to stick around. So thank you so much. Keep, keep up the amazing work. Um, keep us updated. Uh, we're going to stick around. We're going to do a regular panel. If you guys, you guys have a few minutes, you're cool with that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So I want to start off because uh, we, we didn't have an opportunity to talk about the um, Meghan Merkel. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's just so juicy. I love it. But I, it's like, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, this, this was such an interesting angle. Hillary Clinton, who didn't speak out on the $15 minimum wage, hasn't spoken out on the $1.9 trillion uh, uh, stimulus package. She felt like it was her time to speak up about the Meghan Markle, Harry, uh, Prince Harry situation <laughs> after the interview. Uh, Dorsey, do we have that? It's not a clip. It's just a, an article up um, in the Daily Mail. She says that uh, it was outrageous that what the cruelty she that Meghan Markle faced was outrageous. Um, and this is true, but I think what like, I was watching the interview and I was thinking to myself, this is so fascinating because it is, you're seeing an, an, an instrument of colonialism like revealed. They're pulling back the curtain in a raw way. And in a way it kind of, but then like there's safe spaces with like the elite woke crowd of, the US. And I think it like kind of illustrates the dynamics of capitalism right now. Like they're not really ready to go full on, like burn it down. Cause they're hanging out with like Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey and Hillary Clinton's backing them up. But like, it's like a step. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was just, just what do you, let's start, start with Simon. What do you think of this scenario? Cause it's clearly like hitting a nerve with people. And I, I'm trying to figure out why. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those moments where, um, you know, this this upper echelon of people is starting to catch up with the public sentiment. Is there is a lot of criticism of the monarchy uh, around um, the sort of legacy of like racism and colonialism, et cetera, and uh, the and of course Hillary Clinton is right in this instance. Um, but it's it's <laughs> but it's uh, definitely one of those things where uh, I feel like. It's not. It, it doesn't feel revolutionary to say that um, you know these group of this group of people is uh, not quite there on race. You know, um, 
So I, I feel like that's sort of why it's very easy for Hillary Clinton in this moment to speak out against it and for other celebrities uh, to, to do so as well, because there's no negative social consequences for them to do so. Um, it's less true. That is less true when it comes to things that you had mentioned, like the $15 minimum wage and stuff like economic issues are far behind on. What do you think, Kayla? Yeah, I totally agree with Simon's take on this. And I mean, I think your, your connection, connecting it to, you know, how capitalism works is an interesting point in the sense that like, yeah, like, it, and I mean, this has been something that people are, have been sort of like flinging at like, oh, like, why are all these corporations getting behind BLM? And like, why are all these like, you know, institutions that don't give a shit about any, anything like jumping on this bandwagon. And I think to Simon's point, it is because it's easy, but like, I think, you know, the, the counter, the counter argument to this is that like, oh, like there's something wrong fundamentally with this movement, which I think like people are sort of like adopting that being like, oh, well, like if Hillary Clinton is talking about this, if like, I don't know what was the, like Gushers was like tweeting about Black Lives Matter or something like that in last June, like then there's something fundamentally wrong with like actually trying to bring attention to this stuff. And like, I think that is like, uh, underestimating the, the, uh, intelligence of, of our society in that, like, yeah, obviously people are like, once it becomes palatable to say these things, then everyone's going to jump on board, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be having these conversations. And I think part of what's interesting about the Merkel interview is that like, it gets at this race class discussion that so often colors as many of the debates that we have on the left, as far as like, Oh no, it's one versus the other. And like, this is a very clear example where like, yeah, this is one of the most privileged people in the world. Like they're sitting, like, aren't, aren't they like neighbors with Oprah or something? Like someone was telling me about this and it's just like, yeah. And like, even when you have all of these kinds of things, like this is still like a situation that you might be finding yourself faced with. And so I think it sort of is a good example, um, at least for, you know, how we can guide these conversations and kind of talk about how like it isn't, it really isn't just one thing or the other. And like, that doesn't mean that you can't talk about someone's extreme privilege, but it does mean it, and it but it means that like, you know, these things are, are still valid issues and they do impact people's lives in, in meaningful ways. Not saying that, you know, like Archie needs to be a prince, but I mean, <laughs> there, security. Come on. Right. There needs to be, you know, like your grandparents shouldn't be asking what color, what color your skin yeah. is like that, that has, you know, psychological impacts on a child. And so anyway, yeah, that, yeah that's and, what and I, I think. I think it's interesting. Cause like you, there's there's a couple things happening here and I'm, I'm so glad that you you brought that to mind like even with privilege they're still facing systemic racism even the grandparents the family seem to have a, at least at one point like uh, the queen at least more respect and forward thinking I mean I watched the crown she was the forward thinking one um but even then it's like the institution itself was the one that was, could not rid itself of this disgusting racism and this obsession with, with pleasing the right-wing media and you know a lot of other stuff as well. But like what I think is so interesting about this is that it shows you, like they're not there, they're not full on socialist yet. I think Megan could get there because she was calling for unions. And like it was like an amazing little little moment where I used to be, you know, represented by a union. I could just go to my union rep. Like there was no HR for me because I wasn't a yeah. staffer. But um, 
they were what they were doing was they were criticizing an institution, which is something that neoliberals do not do. That is the difference. They'll put the hashtag, you know, woke BLM, whatever it is, name a street BLM, um, but they won't go to the heart of the institution of, you know, defunding the police. Uh, you know, and that I think is why I find this really interesting is like they yeah. were part of the institution and now they're like, this is how it runs. It's definitely one of those instances where you're reminded that it takes a lot more than just getting someone who uh, can recognize the issue and talk about the issue is on the right side of an issue uh, into a position of power or something like that. It's, you know, for example, it takes more than just electing Bernie Sanders to, you know, rid the capitalist exploitation that we're all plagued with in the United States or to it takes more than um, and just getting someone in there, uh, because it, it's, of course, important to recognize it's the institution itself that's designed in such a way that is going to be uh, marginalizing certain groups of people, is going to be um, disproportionately harming the poor and the um, people of color and things like that. It's kind of like the theme of the show today. You have to rip apart institutions. Okay, I want to, um, <laughs> there, there is this uh, montage, <laughs> you guys probably saw this, about like British, how uh, the British were, they were all watching the CBS interview uh, in America on like, I, I don't know, on, on, on the internet. And so they had a unique <laughs> response to our ads. Oh God. Uh, British so people bad. reacting to it. Wait, wait, just go back, Dorsey. I have to read it. Um, British people reacting to American pharmaceutical ads during the Harry Meghan interview. And now <laughs> this is what their, their reactions are. If these medicine ads are what it's like to not have NHS, I never want to experience that. <laughs> <laughs> is there another one? I think there's another one. Yeah. The medicine in American ads more lethal than the thing they're treating. <laughs> the guy confused. <laughs> LOL, these American ads, though, totally forgot about medicine being advertised out there. It's too good. American ads are so funny. How are they advertising medicine? <laughs> right? <laughs> Anyways, um, I mean, oh it, it was beautiful because clearly we... Like, <laughs> Can I just say one of my favorite ones of those was, uh, it was like... You know, at the end of the, the ads, you know how they say, like, talk to your doctor about this, you know, and someone responded like, why am I telling my doctor what to, like, it's not so backwards, you know? It's just that That's crazy what we've been conditioned to, to see as normal. You're going to have like a British Medicare for all movement now. Oh, I'm watching the Megan interview recording. And yet again, I can't understand why American TV ads are like, ask your doctor for, or tell your doctor, why the fuck would you be the one to tell a doctor what medicine to give you? Maybe I'm too European to get it, but what the fuck? Someone should just do like a montage of Europeans being like reacting to like in America, like what is going on? Why did I just spend like $30,000 on a broken arm? <laughs> there is actually, there's, uh, I can't remember what, channel put this together what they like went and compiled a bunch of like short interviews where they're asking just random Europeans on the street to like guess the cost of some medical <laughs> service in the United States guess the cost of an ambulance ride in the United States and they're guessing and they're, they're like don't even know where to begin because it's never something they've ever thought to have to pay for and um then they're just blown away <laughs> I had a, uh, this is probably too much. I had a boyfriend uh, in Greece and from Greece and he like came and he like did not understand, keep his visit. He was just every step of the way, like he had no, I was like, no, you can't, you can't go, you can't go to the hospital for that. And he's like, why? I could just, no, you can't go to, no, we're treating it. Like you're not, like you don't understand how expensive, oh, it's not going to be that expensive. No, it is. You don't understand. You can't just go for everything. <laughs> I find it hilarious also that we treat like we treat having like millions of medicines that do the same thing as like a, a luxury when it's like 
I'm like, no, like that's purely so that corporations can profit off of one another and like be and like create this like false sense of competition. And they would actually probably be much better if we had one that actually yeah. did the job for each thing. But as we're all learning but- through this vaccine situation, like we're watching it all play out in a very strange way. Um, even though we're not paying for the vaccine. But anyways, Akela Lacey, Simon Road, thank you for this very unique show um, all about institutions and breaking them apart and, and how institutions facilitate fascism. That was the top of the show. And, and we're ending with, you know, making sure that we too can one day have an NHS. <laughs> thank you for having us as always. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> And thank you to everybody in the chats. I know you're all there right now. Um, hey, uh, I got to do a little promo before I forget. Um, if you're not a patron, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. You can get a mug. You can get a bag. I have it with me. There's all sorts of stuff. And of course, if you're a member of our book club, we got a bunch. I'm gonna, I'm, I have like a day of interviews coming up with, because I've been reading like crazy, as you all know. Um, I had to get new glasses. I'm sure you saw. Uh, but I got... I've been reading like crazy and there's a day of interviews with our authors for this month's book club. So you're going to get them all at once. Uh, it's a good weekend. Like, you know, if, if you've got more than one book, um, cause there's different levels, you can join and read one book a month, two books a month or four books a month for the four books a month and two, you're going to get a bunch of all at once. Cause that is where I'm spending my time and my books, I would show you my book right now, but it's like covered in notes. I'll do that next time. But anyways, go check us out at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. Uh, sign up for our amazing book club. And I, uh, something's going on, Dorsey. I'm not seeing. The, I'm not seeing. Can you repost all the comments? It's not going through for some reason. Uh, sorry, guys. Here we go. Here we go. There was a little issue. Uh, Ray Lee, thank you so much. We all hate drama in our own lives, but I can't help nerding out on drama, Nevada Dems and the Royals from afar like moth to the flames. Hashtag we are all sinners. Exactly. And Kosen, thank you for the love. No, Miki, I have a way you can grow your sub base. Live stream your reaction to an episode of anime. <laughs> Take recommendation from the community and watch certain scenes. One Punch Man is a good place to start. You'll like it. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> Kowalski from Nebraska. Thank you for the love. Uh, Ray Lee. Oh, we got that already. Sorry, guys. Uh, Kowalski says, says nothing. <laughs> I'm having some glitchiness on here. I'm sorry. There's something going on with my Zoom. Um, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K is in the live chat. Thank you for always joining the live chat on YouTube and Twitch and Midi Docs and Mario for working those algorithms and huge thanks to our YouTube moderators, Bob C, Chokin, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel and Dorian Sapiens, A Difficult Truth, Nightbot, Our Means, and Nug Wrangler on Twitch for keeping our chat room troll free all right we will see you tomorrow 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 we have janice dean on she is the one who is pushing hard on the cuomo uh nursing home scandal she's a fox news anchor um this is going to be quite an interview she has a book out uh really fascinating i'm and she's she's genuinely very nice um i think she's i don't I wonder where she's doing at fox now i don't know but she doesn't get political usually so it will be a super interesting interview. You've got to hear it. I'm really excited about that one tomorrow. All right, we'll see you tomorrow, three o'clock Eastern. Stay in solidarity.